Good morning, church family. Will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we will begin a new series this morning, Lord willing, that will take us uh, pretty much the entire school year. Right now it's slated for 32 sermons and with some breaks, we'll finish at the early part of June. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, maybe you're new with us and you don't own a Bible, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you and 1 Corinthians begins on page 952. And you could take that Bible with you if you would like. Here in a moment, we'll stand and read the first nine verses. Our children, our younger elementary kids are lining up in the back. That line, I think, gets longer every week for the glory of God. While they're lined up, let me just address this. Next Sunday is Promotion Sunday. Now, for most of us, that means nothing because, well, we're not promoting anymore, right? But there are our some of our preschoolers will become elementary kids. Some of our elementary kids will become students. Some of our students become adults. And so there are a couple of things that that affects in here uh, at 930. So if you are the parent of a child that just finished kindergarten and they're about to go into first grade, this is their last Sunday for we worship, which means next Sunday they are going to come in here with you. And they will be fine, I promise, okay? And so they're going to come in here for at least the music portion. If you choose for them to come in here longer than that, as it is with all of the children in our church, uh, children are a blessing from the Lord, we say, in our uh, core values. And so we're going to treat them as such. If, if you want them in here with you, they're certainly fine to be in here with you the entire time at any point. But first through third graders uh, are invited to go to our kids' worship time during the sermon. And so if your child is moving into first grade, they would come with you to worship, and then they would go out at this, at this point if you choose. If you have a third grader becoming a fourth grader, they are no longer invited after this week to do kids' worship because they are now old enough to sit in here the whole time and to be under the preaching of God's word. But our wonderful kids' ministry director does a handout just for them that helps them kind of process through the sermon and gives them some things to look for and to think about. And so those things are on the back table for any child that would choose to be in here uh, during our time of worship. They're, they're uh, welcome to get that and maybe even a few adults that need some help paying attention. The children's page is at the back. Would you stand with us as we honor the reading of God's word as we now turn our attention to Paul's letter, first letter to the church at Corinth. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Church family, let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word 
and for how it instructs us and helps us that you preserved it for your church throughout the age. God, we thank you for your church because this gathered body of believers is the visible representation on this corner of your church. Let us see that church matters as we consider the book of 1 Corinthians together in this season for our congregation, we pray. Instruct our hearts now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If today is your first Sunday with us, I'll explain briefly how I uh, preach and how we as a church approach God's word in our corporate gatherings here on the Lord's Day. We pick a book of the Bible and we start with the beginning and then just methodically and slowly we go to the end and then we pick another book of the Bible and we do the same thing. I tend to move from the Old Testament to the New Testament grouping shorter series, kind of coupling shorter series together like we did with Ecclesiastes and a portion of Psalm 119 and then with a longer series. And so this is going to be a longer series. Again, somewhere in the neighborhood of 32 sermons. We'll have a few breaks in here. We will explain the breaks when we get to them. Uh, But in the main, 32 weeks take us about nine months to do this series together. The reason that we do that is because we believe the word of God is best understood within the context that it was written, that verses are influenced by paragraphs, paragraphs by chapters, and chapters by the book. And so if we don't take the whole book together, we very likely will miss the depth of meaning that is in the text. 1 Corinthians is a lengthy book, 16 chapters. And it's going to take us a while to walk through it. And so when I preach these longer sermon series, I like to begin with a introductory sermon in the epistles. It's kind of easy. I use uh, the greeting and the the thanksgiving prayer that often uh, the apostles will offer to the church. That's kind of a guide for us to think about what the whole book is. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to be thinking together about the whole book of 1 Corinthians, why we've entitled this series Church Matters, And why does the church actually matter? So just some information here about the book of 1 Corinthians. It is the second longest letter in the New Testament, second longest to Romans only. If Romans teaches us the doctrine that is important for the church, then 1 Corinthians teaches us the practice that is important for the church. Not that either of those books is entirely dedicated only to those subjects, but where Romans is doctrinal, 1 Corinthians is certainly very practical. The reformer John Calvin writing on this book says, it is no less difficult than it is valuable. 1 Corinthians is a difficult book. It's a very familiar book. Some of the most quoted passages of scripture, particularly from the epistles, comes from 1 Corinthians. However, when we take, take on the task of actually studying this book over the course of months together, what we will see is that, that sections of it are rather difficult because we are far removed from the language, geography, economy, culture, and the predominant religious practices of this city. Because this is a very practical work that was very likely actually a response to a letter that had been written to Paul from the church 
There is little explanation that is given about practical subjects that are addressed within the book, like legal issues, prostitution, meat markets, pagan worship, and even practices like head coverings and a strange practice of baptizing people for the dead. Because of this, 1 Corinthians has proven to be difficult for the church throughout the age. Over the centuries, scholars have developed competing ideas, and there is no shortage of varying interpretations on many of these passages that we will consider, Lord willing, week after week through this series. And yet, the Lord preserved this letter for his church. Think about how I prayed for us just a moment ago that we are the visible representation of God's church on this corner. And while this letter was written from an apostle to a specific local church in his goodness and kindness towards his people, God preserved this letter, not just for that church, but for this one. 1 Corinthians was not written to Nansman River Baptist Church, but it is for Nansman River Baptist Church. And so we should consider it. What it has to say to us, while it was written to a distinct people in a distinct place, in a distinct city, in a distinct culture, we can learn and apply it today in our church, in our city, and in our culture for these people. The main idea of our sermon today is who the church is and what the church does is a matter of temporal and eternal consequences. You know, you'll notice the sermon series title is Church Matters, and I'm going to use that both today and throughout the series in two ways. One is to say that the church matters, <laughs> It matters that we are the church. It matters that the church exists, that church matters. But that we will also see that numerous church matters are addressed in this book and the way that we function as a church matters. So this is a series about who the church is and what the church does. And who the church is and what the church does matters. Look with me in verse 1 in the first part of verse 2 where our author and audience are identified. Paul, the author, uh, letters of this time most often began with the author identifying himself and thankfully Paul does this for us. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, when we approach epistles like this, what I like to do is place the epistle within uh, the broader story of the New Testament. Again, we, we interpret scripture in context of other scripture. And so to know where this letter fits within what God is doing in his church in the first century is important to us. So, Who's Paul? Paul is, is an apostle of Jesus, uh, encountered Jesus, was persecuting the church, encountered Jesus uh, on the road, was saved, and then commissioned by Christ himself to go to the Gentiles and proclaim the good news of Jesus. He does this across multiple missionary journeys 
planting churches uh, in Asia and in portions of Europe, ultimately being imprisoned in Rome and dying for the faith. He has a brother here who he names as so. So Thenus, we will identify who this brother is here in a moment, and this is written to the church of God that is in Corinth. Acts chapter 18 tells us some things about this church. Let's look at these together, just a few verses. A lot of the first part of Acts 18 is about Paul's time in Corinth. I just want to read some of them here. Starting verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens. So Paul is on his second missionary journey. This is around 50 AD, just it may be 49 AD, 50 AD. It's, it's around 50 AD, okay, or AD 50. And Paul is in Athens, so he is in uh, Macedonia and Greece. He's in the section that we would know today as Greece. And he leaves Athens and goes to Corinth, which would be about a 50-mile journey. Skip with me to verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. So there was a small synagogue, mainly Gentiles, living in Corinth, but there were some Jews, some Jewish converts that had a synagogue. Paul preaches in that synagogue. Everybody rejects him, so he's like, I'm kind of done with you. I'm now going to go preach to the Gentiles. But Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul proclaims the gospel. A lot of people get saved. Um, One particular named Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months. So for a year and a half, Paul stays in Corinth, teaching the word of God among them. And then if we were to keep reading there in verse 12 through 16, kind of an uprising happens and and the the, uh, Jewish people make accusations against Paul before the Roman authority in the city. The Roman authority decides to do nothing. And because he decides to do nothing, this is what they do in verse 17. And they all seize Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. That's the the Roman authority in the city. So this Sothenus very likely is the same one who is now with Paul. So one ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, is converted. And it seems as if the one who took his place, Sosthenes, is also converted. So you may think, well, two rulers of the synagogues were, were converted. So maybe a lot of Jewish people were, and this is going to be a very Jewish letter. It's not. While there are some Jewish believers among uh, the church at Corinth, they are in the minority. The vast majority will be Gentiles. And we know this from Paul's letter because he's dealing with primarily Gentile issues. So at some point, Sosthenes begins to travel with Paul, maybe even become Paul's scribe. Some believe that the reason he identifies him is because he is the one that is actually writing the letter that Paul is dictating. I think it's most likely he identified them because he identified Sosthenes because he knew them. He's from their city. Then he, he, he writes, he, he, he leaves there from his second missionary journey. Paul goes uh, back to Israel And then he goes on his third missionary journey. And on his third missionary journey, he goes to Ephesus and has his longest stay in any city. He stays for three years on his third missionary journey in Ephesus. And from there, Paul writes really what is 1 Corinthians, 
Really, 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians we don't have. Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth that the Lord did not preserve for his church. He, we know this from 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says in this letter, in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul has previously written to Corinth at some point in about this five-year period, Paul has written to them from somewhere about certain subjects. We know what one of them, are, one of them is here from 1 Corinthians 5. But we do not have this. This letter is lost to us. The Lord did not choose to preserve this for his church. We get to 1 Corinthians 6 at the end of this at the end of this chapter 1 Corinthians 16 gives us an idea of when Paul is now writing this his second letter to the church at Corinth which we know is 1 Corinthians. He says this in 1 Corinthians 16, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go for I do not want to uh, I, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him in his way in peace that he may return to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. And then he says in verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus Fortunus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. So about five years later, after planting the church at Corinth, let's just roughly say AD 50, in about AD 55, Paul is on his third missionary journey, likely at the end of it, at the end of the three-year period that he stays in Ephesus, he writes to Corinth saying, I hope to come to you soon. I'm sending Timothy to you. He says that in verse 10. Timothy's coming on ahead. Receive him. And thanks for sending these other guys. So when we take all of this into account, here's, here's, we just kind of put the whole story together. In AD 50, Paul plants Corinth, stays a year and a half and leaves. Goes back to Israel, is sent out from Antioch again on his third missionary journey, stays in Ephesus the majority of that time. At some point, Corinth, he writes a first letter to, to, to the church then they very likely respond, and that's who those three guys are in verse 17. They very likely are the people that bring a response letter to Paul. And then Paul responds with 1 Corinthians and says, I'm sending Timothy, and I'm ultimately going to come to you. And he does. The book of Acts tells us that Paul comes. So this is kind of the context, the broader picture of what's happening in the New Testament and where this letter finds itself. So with some of this history under our belt then, let's look at the two main parts of our main idea. It's been a minute since I stated it, so let me restate our main idea. Who the church is and what the church does is a matter of temporal and eternal consequence. So we're starting with the idea that who the church is matters. Who we recognize, this is main point number one, who we recognize as part of the church matters. Go back to our primary text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Picking up where we left off in verse 2, in the middle of verse 2, he's writing to the church at Corinth and he says, to those, he's going to identify them, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Then skip to the end of that section, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, as we were reading that text at the beginning of the sermon, we read back through it here now, what, what, sh- what should stand out to you is the number of times Paul appeals to Christ. He, he says it over and over again, that they're sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're called to be saints in Christ Jesus, that, they've been, that they have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that grace has been given to them through the Father from the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that they've been called into fellowship in the Son, Jesus Christ, our, our Lord. Just over and over, Paul doesn't appeal to his argument for them. He doesn't appeal to his time with them. He doesn't appeal even to his position, his office as an apostle. Paul, from the outset, lays a foundation. And that is that the church at Corinth is built on Jesus Christ alone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if we just read certain parts of this, it helps us here. Listen to verse 2, 5, and 13. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul's looking back five years previously, the time that he spent in Corinth, and he says, the only thing that I taught you about was Jesus and him crucified, meaning the gospel. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He says, I didn't make these eloquent arguments trying to convince you, I just presented the gospel to you. In verse 13, and we impart, this not in, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So this, this helps us to begin to see how Paul views the church at Corinth. That as, and, and if you've studied this book before, if you've read through this book before, you'll notice I've not mentioned something yet. And that, that is, this church is messed up. Okay, they have been getting it wrong in almost everything the entire time they've existed for about five years. Just, for, just to relate it, it was about five years ago that we planted Redemption Heights in West Philly. We still talk about that church like it's a church plant. We probably ought to stop doing that because they're not. They're a church. They're a partner church that we still help to do some, some work with and to support. But Redemption Heights in Philly, beloved by this church is about as old as Corinth. Now I can, I will affirm this about Redemption Heights. They are practicing uh, faithful gospel witness in that place. I don't think they would receive a letter like the church at Corinth, but let's just put ourselves in the position of the people in Corinth. Most of them were pagans, knew nothing of the gospel, practiced Roman pagan religion. And they're converted by the gospel. And yeah, Paul spent a year and a half, but really a year and a half goes by pretty fast. And he leaves. And now they're like, okay, what do we do? And so they're just trying to figure it out. So I'm not really making excuses for what's happening in Corinth, but you can kind of understand it. They've just not been around all that long. But their foundation is the gospel. So with all of this stuff they're getting wrong, Paul still says... You're a church. You are saints because you have believed in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And these, he says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, have been interpreted as spiritual truths by people who are spiritual. He is affirming their Christianity. 
We fast forward to 1 Corinthians 3, where we recognize that factions had arisen. Just in these five years, factions had arisen within the church at Corinth. We get to verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? Apollos was a church planter of the day that had spent some time in Corinth. What then is Apollos? Paul says, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the preacher is unimportant. Let me say that again. The preacher is unimportant. The message is what is important. Only the message of Christ matters because Christ is the foundation for the church of God. He was the foundation for the church in Corinth, and he's the foundation for the church here in North Suffolk. He is the only true foundation for God's church. When we skip to verse 9 back there in 1 Corinthians 1, kind of the end of that section where Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's not just that Paul laid a foundation and walked away, but he laid a foundation. Apollos did some work there as well, but his trust was in this, that ultimately God would be faithful. Paul attributes God's faithfulness with the conversion of sinners in Corinth because it is God who called them into the fellowship of Christ. It is the gospel alone and the work of God in the lives of sinners that takes pagans and turns them into saints. If you're a saint today, you're by the way, if you are in Christ today, then you are a saint. Don't get where some people have gone off with that word, okay? If you are in Christ, just as Paul is treating the the people in Corinth here, then you are a saint, and you are a saint today because you have firmly fixed your eyes on Christ, you have believed in the gospel message that Christ alone is the power of God unto salvation, you have put your faith in him, and that testimony then becomes the foundation for all true churches. All right? So we're making a progressive argument here. Christ and the gospel alone is the foundation. Go to verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed amongst you. So there's some, these people come to faith in the gospel. They believe in the gospel but this word confirmed amongst you, among you means that there's some part that is played in affirming the gospel response of those who call on the name of Christ and become a part of the church. So the church plays a part in this process where he says that the testimony is confirmed. We need to think about that. How was it confirmed? Well, in the direct context of this passage, it was confirmed by the conferring of, the, of spiritual gifts upon the church at Corinth. It's a subject that Paul writes extensively about later in the letter. So yes, it is the Lord who has confirmed their faith by giving them spiritual gifts. But is it the Lord alone? No, he confirmed it to his church by giving outward signs of conversion. 
So here's what Paul's saying. I laid a foundation for you in the gospel. You believed in that gospel. Then the Holy Spirit begins to do a work in your life. He's he's referencing specifically spiritual gifts, but that's not the only thing that we could reference here. The Holy Spirit begins to do this work in their lives. And then that is confirmed by others who have believed the gospel and who the Holy Spirit has done a work in their lives. And this matters for the church. It matters that we hear someone's testimony of faith and that we confirm it as true. Here's why that matters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers were inherited the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, Paul says, to these saints. You used to be like these things. But, he says in verse 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. They were once something, and now they are something else. How does Paul know that? How does Paul know that they were once something, and now they are something else? Because he has confirmed the change in their lives. But remember, this is a fledgling church that is made up of very imperfect people. you got to have some heart for these people that their imperfections have been on display within God's church for the last 2,000 years, okay? Even a little sympathy for them, right? Like they're just writing and asking some questions. Little did they know that the Apostle Paul is going to reply with a letter that's going to be used by God's people, millions of us across the globe to instruct our churches. And yet that's what God does. So this fledgling church made up very imperfect people, their testimony is still confirmed. The apostle confirms it. Other Christians, Apollos confirms it. The mission team confirms it. And then ultimately the church begins to confirm it. It's what the church of God does. The church of God lays a foundation in the gospel. And then as people come to faith in the gospel, we confirm their faith by looking at their lives and confirming it. Then verse 8, again, we're progressing here. Gospel foundation, church confirmation, verse 8, which I want to go back to verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the who of verse 8. The Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the end of this gospel argument of the who of the church and why the who of the church matters is that God is the one who is sustaining his church. He is the one who will present us, the saints of God, in his church as guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ means the day of Christ's return. That we will be presented guiltless on judgment day, not because of efforts that we have made, but because of the sustaining work of God in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, but brothers, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
So even though they are still spiritual babies that can not stomach meat, they can only have milk, Paul's still confident that the work of Christ will be completed in them. So even though they're new at this and in so many ways don't know what they're doing, Paul speaks with confidence about them that they will be presented guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why after going chapter after chapter of, of the sin that they've allowed in their church, of the wrong practice that they've allowed in the church, all of these things that we'll look at chapter after chapter in the study, we get to 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the longest and most beautiful explanations of the gospel in the entire Bible. So he, has, he, he begins by laying this gospel foundation. Then he addresses all of these things. I mean, just chapter after chapter of all of these things that are happening in their church that they need to think about. And then he gets to chapter 15, which we're going to consider at Easter together. And Paul writes this just at the very beginning of this chapter. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, remind you. Remember, he's already addressed all of this stuff. He says, I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, the gospel radically transforms even if that transformation is slow and that transformation is certainly progressive in all of our lives, it still radically transforms And only those radically transformed by the gospel who demonstrate, listen, who demonstrate holding fast to the word preached to them should be a part of the church. So when we say who is a part of the church matters, here's what we're saying. That they've made a legitimate profession of faith, that they bear the fruit of conversion in their lives. And while they are not perfect, they are working to put off sin and to put on Christ and that they continue in holding to that truth. First Corinthians presents to us a picture of a church that is willing to step in in every one of those moments in the life of a believer and in the life of the church and either confirm those things or correct where we have gone wrong. Number two, how we behave and fulfill our mission as a church matters. Look with me back in verse five. Paul says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech, in all knowledge. You see, part of the grace given to them that Paul mentions in chapter four is their enrichment in Christ in all speech and knowledge, meaning that they have what they need to live obediently to Christ. Paul concerns himself greatly in this work with the church at Corinth's obedience. Because how we behave as a church, what we do, both in relation to one another and in relation to the surrounding culture that we live in, it matters. Let's just quickly run through some of these examples. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1, Paul addresses suing one another. He says, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So there were Christians who were suing other Christians in civil court. And Paul's like, can y'all not decide matters for yourself? Why would you go to pagans to tell Christians how to behave? In chapter 7, Paul has to write to them about unspeakable sin. He says, now concerning the matter about which you wrote me. So they've written him. It is, it, is, it is good for a man not to, have the sexual, not to have sexual relations with a woman. So they've written to him, and that's why that's in quotes, and they've included that, and Paul says, but because of the, t- the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, 
and each woman her own husband. So in chapter 5, actually, he deals with this this unspeakable sexual sin. And in chapter 7, he has to spend all of this time dealing with how marriage should actually work and how betrothal should actually work because they've just allowed people to do any manner of things. And some of them are just saying, well, we shouldn't have any kind of marital relationships at all anymore within the church. Chapter 8, Paul writes to them about Food, buying food that's been offered to idols. He says, now concerning food that is offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So, so again, it, probably something they've written him about is like, what are we supposed to do when we go to buy meat and we find out that that meat was sacrificed to false gods? How are we supposed to handle it? Well, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 8. In 1 Corinthians 10, he, he addresses a culture of idolatry. He tells them in verse 14 to flee from idolatry. You see, Paul is methodical in this letter to spell out these warnings concerning the church's behavior. Then you get to chapter 5, where that unspeakable sexual act is addressed specifically. And we have probably the, most, the, the, the second most famous passage in the New Testament, second only to Matthew 18, concerning church discipline. Where Paul says, when you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, when the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Then verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or rivaling or or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, Paul says. You see, it's not only about how we behave as individuals, but it's about how the church of God fulfills our mission to make disciples by disciplining people who are living in open sin. When we experience disobedience in our lives, which we all do, The call of God is to repent and to walk in faith and to walk in Christ. But when a church member fails to do that, we are prescribed specific things that we as a church are supposed to do because our behavior matters. It it matters. And how we fulfill the mission of God also matters. And Paul's going to address that. He says, In verse 7, if you back up to verse 5, remember, enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. In verse 7, he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift, so that you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, not not only does how we act matter, but how we structure ourselves and function as a congregation matters. Look at all of these different subjects Paul addresses. In chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says, now I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul is kind of introducing this section. He's like, I've already told you some of these things. Now you're going to need to do them. For instance, in verse 33, so that so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. He gives them instructions on the Lord's Supper. In chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. He gives them instructions on practicing spiritual gifts in the life of the church. In chapter 14, verse 26, he says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let them all be done for the building up. In verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. So Paul gives them instructions for how they should function within corporate worship. What we're doing right now is guided by 1 Corinthians 14. You get to 1 Corinthians 16. 
He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church at Galatia, so I also direct you on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and to store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collection when I come. He's giving them specific instructions on how to handle finances within the church. Why? Why talk about, and and there are some we didn't mention. These are just some of the highlights. Why talk about all of these structural things within the church? Because how we organize ourselves and operate as a church has a direct impact on our ability to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. That if we allow ourselves to become dysfunctional, which in so many ways the church at Corinth was, if we allow ourselves to become dysfunctional, what ultimately suffers is the mission. If we allow sin to remain, unconfessed, unrepentant sin to remain in our congregation, and we just turn a blind eye to it, what happens? Our mission suffers. If we try to build on a foundation other than Christ and him alone, if we don't work to confirm the testimony of faith of those who want to join our church or are unwilling to practice church discipline, what happens? The mission of the church suffers. That these things have both temporal and eternal consequence when the, if the church of God is going to do what God has instructed the church to do, then we need to do so in the way that God has instructed to us, all by the way, while being unified of like mind together, which is our sermon next week. So what? This is a question that we're going to ask of our church over the next nine months as we walk through this series together. Is our church comprised of Christians who have come to saving faith in Christ alone and who are obedient to his instruction for his church. Unfortunately, there are a lot of places in our world today that call themselves churches that are not actually comprised of Christians. They may be people who call themselves Christians, but they have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ alone by the power of the gospel, having their lives transformed by it. It has become more of a cultural identity than an actual true heart change. And then there are others even churches who are made up of confession Christians that have turned, have turned church into a social club, a place of activity, a place of, of uh, well, this is where we come. And, and if you'll go all the way back to what I preached when I first came here in view of a call eight, some eight plus years ago, we've turned the church into a cruise ship instead of a battleship where our needs are met and, and we're pampered and we're tended to, but we're never on actual mission for God. If we're going to be a church that truly lives up to our mission of making disciples that make disciples, then we need to ensure that our church is comprised of Christians who have experienced saving faith, but who are also obedient to what the Lord says his church should be. This is the question that we will seek to answer about our church over the next nine months. But I understand maybe you're here today and you say, I'm not really a part of your church, Ryan. I came, a friend invited me. And you heard me talk about Christ and his gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection. You got to see that demonstrated by two saints this morning giving their testimony of faith to the church. You say, I've never believed in that. I've never put my faith in Jesus alone. I've been trying to do this on my own. I've been, you know, kind of just taking a piece of this and a piece of that, or maybe I really didn't even know what I believed. I would implore you today, my friend, believe in Jesus. Trust in Christ who came from the Father, 
God himself put on flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death so that you too could be saved. And then you can become a part of his church and then you can begin to walk in obedience with him. But it only begins, you can only do that if you've come to Christ in saving faith. Will you do that today, my friend? Will you trust in Jesus? And church, will we commit together this morning to over the next months, if the Lord gives them to us, as we walk through this New Testament epistle together to evaluate our church and our commitment to the church and our place within the church and ask this question, are we the kind of church that God has instructed us to be? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the goodness again of your word how it does instruct us first in the gospel of Jesus. And I pray, Father, that if someone hears that good news of Jesus today, that they will trust in him, repent of their sins, and turn towards Christ in saving faith and believe. For our church, God, would you help us from becoming like the church at Corinth that would need a letter like this, that would need so much correction? Would you warn us through it? God, I thank you. That as I ask this question, I recognize that this is a healthy church. This is a church that, that I, I believe in so many ways is organized like the Bible would have us to be organized. We're, we're unified around our gospel message, but do we still have areas to grow? Sure we do. So God, will you help us to see those? Will you help us to do the hard work of, of even making some of those changes in our church? God, if, if you were to convict our hearts through your word to do that. Let us not approach your word as if we have already got it all figured out. But let us come humbly, saying that both we as individuals and we as the congregation need you to continue to do your work of sanctification in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I, you heard a clear presentation of the gospel and the good news of Jesus. At the end of the service, I'll be in the lobby. If you've never believed that before, would you just come and talk to me? Let me share with you how you can put your faith in Christ and we can help you to walk in that. In church, we respond by worshiping the one who has instructed his church and maybe even by dwelling on some of these questions that we've asked today. So would you stand with me as we sing?